Welcome to True Crime Cat Lawyer. I'm your host, Elise, and sometimes my cat Winston joins me. This podcast contains content of a graphic nature that might not be suitable for all listeners, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and crimes against animals and children. Listener discretion is advised. Before we get into today's episode, I want to give a shout out to our awesome supporters, aka our patrons. Thank you so much to Ben, Carol, Kim S., Brianna, Amy, Alec, Kim F., Christina, Wendy, Jess, Jessica, and Christy. Winston and I appreciate your monthly contribution to our show, which allows us to help animal rescues and shelters who so desperately need our financial support. You're all awesome, and we can't say thank you enough for donating your hard-earned money to support a cause that's so important to us. If you want a shout-out on a future episode, head over to patreon.com slash truecrimecatlawyer and join the Patreon for just $5 a month. You get monthly bonus content as well as an exclusive sticker sheet after three months and a 6x6 print after six months, plus little random gifts throughout the year. Head over to patreon.com slash truecrimecatlawyer to join. We'll also include a link to our Patreon in the show notes. Hello, and welcome back to True Crime Cat Lawyer. Before we get started, I want to add an extra trigger warning for domestic violence. Please use caution when listening to today's episode. October is National Domestic Violence Awareness Month. According to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, one in three women and one in four men have experienced some form of physical violence by an intimate partner. Intimate partner violence affects 12 million people every year, and women ages 18 to 34 generally experience the highest rates of intimate partner violence. Today's episode covers two cases from Oregon. We'll start in Hillsboro. Gabriela Jimenez Perez was born on July 9, 1979, in Panorama City, California. She was the third of six kids. Her family moved to Hillsboro, Oregon when she was little, and Gabriela eventually graduated from Glencoe High School in 1997. Gabriela met her husband, Carlos Jimenez Vargas, at a high school dance. The couple got married shortly after high school graduation in 1997. They had four daughters together. Gabriella attended Portland Community College and later earned her bachelor's degree from Portland State University. She worked as a substitute teacher for the Hillsborough School District, and she also worked in human resources. Family was everything to Gabriella. She was an incredibly kind and loving mom who enjoyed gardening, raising chickens, singing karaoke, and camping. On November 16, 2022, police arrived at a home in Hillsboro around 8 p.m. Gabriella and her sister Lennon had been shot to death outside the home. Inside the home, Carlos Jimenez Vargas was found with life-threatening injuries from an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound. Carlos later died at the hospital from his injuries. Carlos was previously arrested for several violent crimes throughout 2022, including strangulation, unlawful use of a weapon, fourth-degree assault constituting domestic violence, menacing, and second-degree invasion of personal property. At the time of Gabriella's murder, there was a court order prohibiting Carlos from possessing or owning any deadly weapons. 
There was also a no-contact order in place stemming from an October 7th arrest. Carlos was out on bail for these charges, and his trial was set for February 1st, 2023. His release agreement stipulated that he wasn't supposed to contact Gabriella and he had to wear an ankle monitor. Just like Tiffany Hill's husband, Cleland, Carlos wasn't deemed quote-unquote dangerous enough to be held in jail pending trial. Carlos went to Gabriella's house at least once prior to the night of the murders in direct violation of the pre-trial release agreement. On October 12th, about a month before the murders, Gabriella filed a 29-page application for a restraining order. In her application, Gabriella checked the box that said she was in fear of physical injury from her husband. Before we dive deeper into Gabriella's case, let's talk about restraining orders in Oregon. Like Washington, there are several different types of restraining orders. The one we're going to focus on is the FAPA, or Family Abuse Prevention Act. In order to file a FAPA restraining order, the victim must be a current or former spouse of the abuser or someone living with the abuser in a sexually intimate relationship, amongst other qualifications. As part of the application, the abuser must have physically injured, tried to physically injure, raped, or sexually assaulted the victim within the prior 180 days, and the abuser must present an ongoing and imminent danger to the victim. An ongoing and imminent danger means the abuser is a threat to the safety of the victim and or the victim's children. Like Washington, the restraining order has to be served on the abuser by a sheriff's deputy. The abuser has 30 days to object to the restraining order and request a hearing. At a restraining order hearing, the victim must prove the past abuse and prove that he or she is in danger of further abuse. This can include testimony of the victim and other witnesses, along with evidence such as photos of the injuries, police reports, etc. If a restraining order is granted, it's good for a year from the date the judge signs it, unless the order is dismissed or canceled by the court. A restraining order can be renewed every year if the judge believes the victim is likely still in danger from the abuser. In the restraining order, the court can do the following things. It can prohibit the abuser from intimidating the victim either directly or through another person. It can prohibit the abuser from being within 150 feet of the victim's current or future residence and place of employment. It can keep the abuser at least 10 feet away from the victim in court and legal proceedings. It can prohibit contact from the abuser directly or through another person via mail, email, social media, phone calls, and texts. And it can require the abuser to surrender all firearms. Oregon restraining orders are enforceable in every county in Oregon, all 50 states, the District of Columbia, and on tribal lands. In Oregon, a violation of a restraining order is grounds for automatic arrest with bail set at $5,000 for the violation. An abuser also faces a six-month jail term for any violation of the restraining order. At Gabriella and Carlos's restraining order hearing, Gabriella told the judge that on October 6th, after an argument, Carlos pulled out a gun and loaded it in front of her, telling her he was going to kill himself. Gabriella also talked about an incident in April 2022. Again, she and Carlos got into an argument after Gabriella told him the relationship wasn't working out. Carlos grabbed his bag and started loading the magazine of his gun. 
When Gabriella grabbed the bag with the gun, Carlos told her he'd end the argument by both of them shooting each other. According to Gabriella, Carlos had been drinking heavily at the time. The judge said there wasn't enough evidence to grant the restraining order because the threats Carlos made were about harming himself, not Gabriella. Then the judge had the audacity to tell Gabriella that she should do everything she needed to to keep herself and her kids safe. Just five weeks after the restraining order was denied, Gabriella and her sister were murdered in cold blood by Carlos. When the judge who denied the restraining order was asked to comment on the case after Gabriella's murder, he said the restraining order was a red herring. Quote, if the defendant wasn't going to abide by the criminal release agreement, he wasn't going to abide by a restraining order. The only way Carlos Vargas was going to be stopped at that time was for him to remain in custody. There are several troubling things about what the judge said. First, he's accepting zero responsibility for his part in this situation. He chose not to see the danger in an abusive and violent offender like Carlos having access to a firearm. According to Everytown's website, quote, domestic violence and gun violence are deeply interconnected. Guns are more likely to turn abuse fatal, end quote. Two-thirds of women killed by an intimate partner are killed with a gun. Access to a gun makes it five times more likely that a woman will die at the hands of an abuser. More than 50% of women killed by gun violence are killed by family members or intimate partners. And finally, the presence of a gun in domestic violence situations increases the risk of homicide for women by 500%. So even if Carlos never directly threatened Gabriella with the gun, his access to a gun made it nearly inevitable that Gabriella would be murdered by her husband. But for the record, in my opinion, loading a gun in the midst of an argument with your partner is both threatening and intimidating. Gabriella was obviously afraid of what her husband would do to her, and the judge completely ignored that. The other issue I have with the judge is that he doesn't seem to think there's a need to change the system to be more protective of domestic violence victims. Yes. A restraining order is only a piece of paper, and it can't physically stop abusers from violating its terms. But what a restraining order does is give the victim the ability to call in law enforcement and have their abuser arrested, making a record of the abuse. But like we talked about in Tiffany Hill's episode, domestic violence cases do need a different approach from the criminal justice system. The judge was right about one thing. Gabriella would only have been safe from Carlos if he was held in jail without bail. So why isn't that an option? This is what domestic violence advocates should be pushing for. Keeping abusers locked up away from their victims is one of the few ways we can keep victims safe. And just in case you weren't mad enough, an investigation later uncovered some troubling information. The court never provided address information to the GPS tracking company so they could keep track of Carlos. And because of this, Carlos was never flagged as having broken the terms of his release agreement when he went to Gabrielle's house the first time before the murders. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, you can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. Doodle Witch was created from the love Rima had for all things spooky. 
Growing up in England, Halloween wasn't a big celebration, so she always found herself searching for cute, spooky things that didn't exist or weren't available near her. As she got older, she started to create the things she always wanted but couldn't find, and now she can share them with others around the world, and she hopes it brings them just as much joy as she has creating them. Check out Doodle Witch on Etsy, and we'll link the shop in our show notes. Our next case takes us to Gresham, Oregon, a suburb east of Portland. And this case is just as heartbreaking as Gabriella's. Jessie Doyle Cavett was a hairstylist slash instructor at the Bella Institute School of Cosmetology. She was described as a loving mother and teacher and a devoted family member and friend. Friends and family said that Jessie was a beautiful and kind person and she always saw the good in people. It's unclear when exactly Jessie met Josh Cavett, but the two eventually got married and had a daughter together. Jesse had a daughter from a prior relationship, and Josh had a few kids from at least one of his prior relationships. Josh Cavett had a history of using meth, along with a lengthy criminal record. Cavett was a member of the whites-only Gypsy Motorcycle Club. By 2007, Cavett had been convicted of felony assault, as well as several other probation violations. Cavett also had restraining orders dating back to 2009 from three different women. During an assault related to his initiation into the motorcycle club, Cavett suffered a brain injury. He would later claim through his attorney that this made him more impulsive, prone to violence, and led him to use drugs. He also claimed this injury caused a quote-unquote stark change in his demeanor. According to Jesse's family, Cavett was the worst thing to ever happen to her. Cavett was controlling and abusive, and Jesse often had bruises and other marks on her body. The relationship was a violent one, and Jesse lived in fear of Cavett. Jesse's family said she was trying hard to get out of the abusive situation. In July 2013, Jesse was awarded sole custody of her and Cavett's two year old daughter. Cavett wasn't allowed any parenting time with their daughter. Jesse filed for a restraining order and for divorce in August 2013. In her 16-page application, Jesse stated that Cavett repeatedly harassed her and threatened her life. Cavett sent text messages to Jesse threatening to tie her up to a chair and then peel her skin off layer by layer. Jesse also mentioned an incident on April 15th where Cavett pushed her down onto the couch and then proceeded to hit her in the head over and over again before kicking her in the stomach. The restraining order was granted on August 15th, but Cavett continued to harass Jesse throughout the summer. He threatened to give her a quote-unquote hot shot, aka a lethal drug injection, and he threatened to have someone else hurt her. On the same day that Jesse filed her restraining order, Cavett's stepsister also filed a restraining order against Cavett. Cavett sent his stepsister threatening texts and got in her face before pinning her to a car and threatening to beat her. Cavett then yelled in the street that he had no problem making her disappear. There was also a restraining order against Cavett in a different county that had been filed by Cavett's first wife. She described verbal threats from Cavett and said that Cavett grabbed her and violently shook her. She also said the two got into an argument while she was holding her one-month-old baby. Cavett started hitting her while she was holding the baby, 
and in another incident, Cavett pushed her down while she was breastfeeding the baby. After pushing her down, Cavett got on top of her while she was still holding the baby. All of this happened in front of her two-year-old, who was hysterically crying. In October 2013, Cavett showed up at Jesse's apartment where he shot her in the head at close range, in front of Jesse's five-year-old daughter and his own two-year-old daughter with Jesse. After shooting Jesse, Cavett fled the scene, taking his two-year-old daughter with him and leaving the five-year-old behind. The five-year-old girl called a family friend, telling them, quote, Josh hurt mommy. Josh shot mommy. The family friend called 911 and an Amber Alert was issued for the two-year-old girl. When police arrived at Jesse's apartment, her five-year-old daughter was crying, holding the cell phone to her ear and standing over her mom's body. This sweet angel had put a stuffed animal near her mom's head and she used tissues to try and wipe blood off of her mom. Jessie was still alive when police arrived, but she was later declared dead at the hospital. Around 8.50 p.m., 10 hours after the murder, Cavett was arrested at an apartment complex less than a mile from where he killed his estranged wife. Their two-year-old daughter was taken to the hospital to be checked out, but she was physically unharmed. During a search of Cavett's backpack, police recovered four guns, ammunition, and a bulletproof vest. Cavett said he shot Jesse after he lost custody and visitation rights in court. His attorney said, quote, frustration over not being able to see his daughter along with paranoia caused by a brain injury and drug use led him to kill his wife, end quote, in front of the two young girls. Cavett's attorney said that Cavett did a horrible thing, but he wasn't a horrible person. And I call bullshit. The extensive criminal history, multiple restraining orders, and abuse described by three different women indicates to me that Cavett was absolutely a horrible person. But I digress. Cavett agreed to a plea deal, supposedly in order to spare his kids from a trial. He pled guilty to murder, felon in possession of a firearm, and felon in possession of body armor. Charges of aggravated murder, burglary, custodial interference, and unlawful use of a weapon were all dismissed under the plea agreement. At sentencing, Cavett apologized to Jesse's family and his own family. Jesse's dad spoke at sentencing, telling the court that no matter what sentence Cavett was given, it would never be enough, and the damage of what Cavett had done was beyond words. Cavett was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 28 years. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe and leave a review if you like the show. You can email case suggestions or comments to truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com. The links for our social media pages are included in the show notes. And if you want more content, head over to Patreon to join one of our available tiers. Finally, if you're interested in learning more about my co-host, you can check out her Instagram at WinstonTheCatPDX. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned for our next episode.